Hi, my name is Chris Graber, and I'm an associate in research in the University of South Florida's College of Behavioral and Community Sciences School of Social Work. Welcome to the Remarkable Podcast. Listeners, and welcome to our next Remarkable podcast. I am excited today to bring you this bright light of a person who is working on her PhD, who is fairly far down the path of doing this. Her name is Stephanie Rosado. And Stephanie and I have kind of known each other for the past, since she's been at USF, and I've kind of been watching her journey. And guys, I want to share with you that I think her journey is really one that I'm excited for you guys to hear about. So, Stephanie, I just will just plod on into it. Tell me how you got to this place in your career that a lot of people dream of getting to and they just never quite get there. Yes, thank you so much, Chris, and thank you for having me. Well, let's get right into it. What led me to a PhD in social work? Let me just tell you that it was an interesting process. Uh, you're right, I never thought I would be here, but it was a lot of ups and downs, a lot of failures, a lot of redirections that kind of led me to this point. I recently kind of talked about my journey in a TED Talk that I just gave for TEDx Bradenton, but basically I came from an urban city um, of a minoritized population. I'm a Latina and who came up in a minoritized neighborhood. You know, my dream was just to freaking go to college, right? right I never right. thought a PhD was even in the books for me. So I always valued education. And guess what? My family didn't have money to pay for that education. So I had to identify a way out of my circumstance. And sports was one of those ways. And so I picked up a basketball. I worked really hard. I sucked at first. I was terrible, but worked really hard at it and eventually got offered a Division I scholarship. And I went on to college on a full ride Division I scholarship. And then that kind of just jump-started my college and professional career as a professional athlete, obviously. And then injury happened and identity crisis happened and mental health issues happened. And I had to give up the sport that I I knew, that I identified with. And I I lost everything. I I really lost everything. At At that time, I was going through a lot of life transitions as well personal transitions. And, you know, I I was scrambling to find a way to do something else. Like, what am I if I'm not an athlete? I didn't know what I was. Like, I didn't know how else to identify. So I I tried a lot of different things during that time, went back to school for a couple different things. And then at the end of the day, I had to do some reflection and said, what do I really want to do? And I was like, I want to help some people, you know, people like me, you know, like myself and stuff. And so I I decided to pursue my master's of social work. And then that kind of led me to sports social work, which I had no idea existed. You mean I can help athletes who went through the same thing that I did? And it's kind of like, or use sports as an intervention to help communities and help like sport help 
helped yes. me to get to college. And so then when I got involved with the Alliance of Social Workers in Sports and Sports Social Work, it was a relatively new field. And I started to think, well, how do you grow a field? Like, how does a field actually right. become a thing? And guess what? Research. Research came up like, well, to expand the field, you had to have more research on that topic. And that's what was the key was like, oh, I could get a PhD and focus on things that I'm interested in, like wow. sports, social work and other issues that I'm passionate about. So that's how I got here. <laughs> so, wow. I mean, you know, I've talked about this every podcast and every one of you has talked about the fact that learning has been a coping mechanism for you at some point in time in your journey. Mm -hmm. And isn't that comforting to know that learning makes you more resilient? I mean, you. Yeah. so you go through this identity crisis. How old were you when you were going through all that and you were trying to decide who you were and how you identified? Talk a little bit about kind of ages and stages and where you were when you're like, oh my God, I'm no longer a basketball player. So I think when I first had the, my big major surgeries, talking about double knee reconstructive surgery that ultimately ended my career, right? I think I was my early 20s, like 21, 22, around wow. there. And then I, I continued to try to play and try to make things happen. And my professional career ended around, I want to say like 24, around okay. there. Very early um, on. 24, 25. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I was considered a young, you know, that's, that's your prime during that, right. during right. that age. And so going through that identity crisis, I was in my mid twenties, you know, and that crisis continued for years. It, it wasn't just, oh, I went through a little month where I was struggling. Right. This was years of identity crisis and trying to figure myself out probably almost a decade. I would say I'm still figuring out who I am and I'm okay aren't, with that now. Aren't we all? You know? I mean, yeah, that that's the trick, becoming okay with the fact that we're all still becoming. Yep, yep, yep. So that's kind of the the stages right there. So for those of you that are in your 20s or even 30s still listening, like it's okay. We're still all figuring it out. <laughs> well, I will tell you in my 50s, I'm still figuring it out, but I'm enjoying the journey because I'm embracing what I don't know. You know, I think, that that's part not being I'm not afraid of it because I use learning as a coping mechanism. I learn about it. And guess what? It's not as scary. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that about learning as a coping me mechanism. I guess I never until you said that I never really verbalized it or thought about it in that way. But but you're so so right. We struggle with things because we don't know what they are. Right. Right. Or we can't understand it. We can't comprehend it. We can't make it make sense in our head. And so that's when it becomes scary. We don't know. But when we're able to learn about our experiences, our vulnerabilities, our struggles, and really understand them and put them into context, into context with our upbringing, with our culture, with, you know, connecting the dots. That's when we're able to bring meaning into our lives, right? Absolutely. And make sense of the world. Well, and isn't that what we're all in search of is making sense of the world. And I think one of the special things about social work for me is it's not just about making sense of the world, but it's making sense of how I can contribute to helping other people maximize their potential and where I fit in that. Most definitely. Yeah. I feel like that for me in my career, that's, if I can do that, what a great blessing. So tell me, 
a little bit about your, you know, your MSW and kind of how you went on that journey, because a lot of folks are sitting there with thinking about getting an MSW or have an MSW and wonder what's next. So talk a little bit about that season of your life. To be completely transparent and blunt and honest, I went into the MSW thinking I want to help people. I didn't know exactly how, but I knew social work was a profession. I looked up what the ethics and values of social work were. And I'm like, yes, this is exactly what I want to do or kind of like what I want to contribute to society or how I want to contribute to society. But I didn't really know what I was getting into, honestly. And so when I got into my MSW program through the University of Southern California, it was that learning experience. Again, we come back to learning and I was like, wow. And I was relating all this stuff that I was learning to my own experiences. Even, you know, when you get into those DSM classes and those clinical classes, you start diagnosing yourself and your family members <laughs> yeah. and you start. <laughs> it's amazing how pathological everybody becomes at that point in time. Yeah. So I was just having like all of these revelations. I was really excited about it. And then clinical internship happened, right? And to be completely transparent again, clinical internship scared the heck out of me. It scared me away from wanting to do clinical work because I wasn't in the placement that I was at. I didn't necessarily have the support that I needed, which was unfortunate, right? And I went through that period and just kind of gritted, gritted it out, just got through like, just let me finish my MSW and I'll figure it out afterwards. But through that lack of support, I gained a lot of skills. I was able to learn what I, I was capable of doing and that I was able to handle tough things and tough situations and still be able to help people. But it scared me away from the clinical route. So I worked in child welfare after my MSW, more of like providing direct services, but not at that clinical level, right? right? But right, all right, the right. clinical knowledge was extremely helpful in Absolutely. the child welfare system. So then I was, you know, I was still trying to figure out how to incorporate sports social work and get back to that, which I was introduced to during my MSW as well. And then that research component came back in. I'm like, I want to go get my PhD and be more involved with research. So that's kind of how that happened. And now I've kind of rekindled that clinical flame. And that's one of my goals. I'm hoping that next year or, you know, when I get close to finishing my dissertation, that I can start gaining hours towards clinical licensure because I just see the need for evidence-based practice. And also, to, and also practice-informed research, too. Uh, you, you said so many things just now that resonate with me about our program. They said, well, it's a clinical program. I think there's a mindset about clinical that I, I, I don't know that we do a good enough job of articulating how clinical can be a wide berth of things. It doesn't necessarily mean the 50-minute hour and hanging out a shingle that says, you know, Stephanie LCSW, think about with me just a second how much your clinical, the, the knowledge you gained from that really impacts your ability just to deal in the world, in the boardroom, or like you said, child welfare. You know, people think child welfare and clinical are completely oxymoronic and that they're mutually exclusive. And I keep saying to folks, no, 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 we need good clinical case managers inside of child welfare that can understand where people are coming from. Yes, that clinical knowledge was so valuable to me. When I'm understanding a family system 
and how best to service families who may be struggling with substance abuse or how to do wraparound services for a parent who may be struggling with substance abuse or a different family member that may have a different depressive issue or whatever it is. It's so important to have that understanding and how best to help them cope and deal. Well, and the knowledge of trauma, you mentioned, you know, your identity crisis, if you will, you know, that was traumatic. That knee injury was real life trauma. Now people say, oh, it's a knee injury. No, it was trauma for you, right? Yes, yes. You hit the nail on the head with that. It was traumatic, not only because it stripped me from my identity, but I went through other issues, which kind of lead me to why I'm so passionate about my dissertation topic. Let me just say what, what I'm interested in with my dissertation topic, and then I'll wrap it back right, around. Right. But my dissertation interest is looking at osteoarthritis, or OA for short, and its effect on quality of life with a special attention given to younger adult populations. I was diagnosed with OA in my early 20s. People usually think of that as an older person's disease. Right, right, and they right. don't really think of younger people having that disease. I was not only stripped of my identity, I couldn't do daily tasks. Walking up the steps hurt. Working out became a burden. Kneeling down, TMI, too much information going, you know, sitting on the toilet was painful. So as right. a young adult, I not only was stripped of my identity, but other quality of life areas really became traumatic for me. And, you know, losing, losing those things in my life was really what led to depression, anxiety, and of things course. of that nature. But it's based on the, the trauma aspect of having an injury like that. Well, you know, I, I think there's such intersectionality, and we don't talk about it enough, be, between our physical health and our emotional health. And it becomes kind of a chicken and the egg argument. But think about how your physical health beget depression. Your lived expertise is really about intersectionality of your primary health and your emotional health. Yeah. And even so, one thing that I'm focusing specifically on with my dissertation is social role participation. And so, think about important roles that you identify with, right? And if how a disease could potentially impact that. If you're a parent of a young child and all of a sudden you develop this chronic illness that doesn't have a cure, and now you feel like you can't parent in the way that you want to, you can't play with your children like you want to, or maybe you can't be the wife, husband, or partner that you want to be because of certain limitations or whatever it is. So it's that intersectional piece and how chronic illness can definitely inflict traumatic experiences and can also intersect with other areas of your life. For sure. I mean, it's so simple in one sense. And it, it, and what you just said normalizes, I think, for a lot of people, people that do have some sort of chronic illness, of course, you're going to be depressed. Of course, you're going to have these behavioral responses to, to what you're experiencing. And I think sometimes just naming it really helps people. Yes. Again, learning as a coping mechanism. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's profound to me. And I know I, I keep beating that whole idea, but I really do think innately we're built to learn as human beings. Yeah, I resonate with that a lot. So I definitely appreciate it. And I, like I said, I never thought about it that way, but it, it definitely it has been the case for me that I've used learning and continuing my education and continuing to be a student of life as a way to cope with with life itself. <laughs> All right. So looking at yourself now, 
at this point in time in our collective history, how would you say you identify? We talked about how you identified early on. How is your how you identify evolved? Ooh, that's an interesting question. I would say that I've always been a loud and proud Latina. I'm a Puerto Rican, and I, I that's always been there. So that's right, been consistent. Right, right. But as far as how I identify otherwise, I just think it's, I will never identify the same way. You know, in five right. years, I'll probably identify a little bit different. I'll probably hold a different role, be in a different position in my life. And I think it's just, I feel like I wear so many hats. I have my hands in so many pots that I don't really know how I can put that into a, a sentence. I always identify with kind of traits like I'm a hard worker right. I'm gritty I'm a Latina I you're am resilient. um you're resilient. resilient I am outspoken I am so that that's kind of how I identify a little bit I'm a social worker right I'm a researcher right now that in this stage of my life I can say that I'm a social worker I'm a researcher I'm an academic but I think it'll just continue to change just so you know not everybody gets to do a TEDx talk so I think one of those adjectives has got to be inspirational from the standpoint of you can go from a crumpled up mess on the basketball floor to having this discussion right now. And that journey is completely possible. It's feasible. And it's actually, it's all doable. And I love that about your story. And equate whatever you want to that trauma that you experienced on the basketball court. We all have those in our lives, but yeah. there's a whole story of coming back from that and becoming something different because of it. So like if you're going to give advice to uh, potential students, whether they be BSW, MSW or PhD, what are you going to say? Don't be afraid to fail, like fail forward. You win or you learn, you know, and yeah. if you're willing to learn, that's it. then you win. Yes, yes. I think that's my biggest piece of advice. Anyone that knows me knows that I will try my hardest even when I know something is hard and then I'm not afraid to ask questions. I'm not afraid to be the person to ask the the question in the room. Everyone could be like, oh, is that a is that a silly question <laughs> to ask? No, I'm, I'd rather be well-informed and ask the question and to make a mistake because I didn't ask the question, so. All right, so talk just briefly. Let's get specific. So your experience at USF. Talk mm -hmm. about what that was like, is like for you right now. You're kind of in a different role, but talk a little bit about what your experience has been at USF. Oh, I'm so grateful for my experience at USF. And I'm not saying that just because I'm here and I feel like I have to. Um, <laughs> Good. I'm, I'm not very honest. You. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very honest. And, you know, when you're researching PhD programs or doctoral programs, you hear a lot of horror stories, to be yeah, quite yeah. honest. It's a hard I time. reached out to many, yeah, I reached out to many students before my decision to pursue a PhD, and I heard a lot of terrible things or terrible experiences. I had a lot of good experiences too, right? And I was prepared for all the bad stuff in my head. I'm like, okay, if this happens, this is how we're going to handle it, kind right. of thing. I was preparing for that. And when I got here, was completely not that like is it hard yes but 
my experience in the USF School of Social Work PhD program has been supportive, has been an open door policy with all faculty, including, you know, my committee. I feel blessed in that sense that I really came into a PhD program that really supports the individual and looks at me as an individual. And they're not just trying to pump out academics or make it so hard that you fail. Everything has just been so supportive. And I feel encouraged to do well. I feel encouraged to finish. I feel like people are rooting for me. We are. I mean, I always say to folks, we worked really hard as social workers when we were your age and we we busted hump trying to make things and we did we're not where we want to be. So you guys, I think the world even now is more complex than it was when I was out knocking on doors and working with families. You guys have to be better, faster, smarter, stronger, but the cool thing is as you are. <laughs> I mean, in my interactions with you all, you you talk about it being a blessing for you, but I will tell you, you encourage people like me who realize, I think, the value of coming into the classroom and having discussions and teaching because you press us to think in ways that maybe we haven't before. And so I want to tell you that how much I appreciate, you know, the fact that you are willing to ask the question. You are willing to press us on what what we know or we don't know. So I don't ever want you to lose that zest because I think it makes us all better. Oh, thank you. I I love it. See, this is why I say I, I've had a great experience. Well, knowing the intent of the director of that program, she really, Sandra, Dr. Sandra Fogel really does want to support you all. I mean, in her heart of hearts, that's what she wants more than anything is for you guys to maximize the potential that you have. Yeah, she has been our number one supporter, cheerleader, pusher. I mean, yeah, we get feedback and papers back with all red ink and we're like, why, 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 why? And we feel so frustrated at times, but she's pushing us to be better, right? And, And at the end of the day, she has been our number one fan, I think, for all of the PhD students in the program. Well, and you and I talked about this. Sometimes it takes ego strength to be an adult waiting on a grade because you think, mm-hmm. oh my God, you know, life is happening all around you. You're paying the bills and people raise children. They're trying to maintain their relationships. I mean, all the adult things. And then to be worried about a stupid grade, you know, and I, th- I, I think that sometimes you find yourself in that position and it does make you question why I'm doing what I'm doing. And it's nice to know. I don't know if you relate to that at all. Do you, does that, does that oh, resonate? Oh yeah. With you? Uh-huh. I just had a conversation with a colleague in the PhD program yesterday. Are like, we're choosing to put ourselves through this suffering. Yeah. <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> yeah. And you know, it is a sacrifice. Honestly, if anyone's listening and considering a PhD program, it's a sacrifice. It is. You willingly put yourself through a PhD program. And there's some guilt associated with that. You know, you, you're you not making a salary like you would if you were right. out in the field working. You know, there's a sacrifice to your family. There's a sacrifice of your time to spend with loved ones and, and others. But I guess the thing that keeps me going is that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and I'm going to come out better. And after all of this is done. So I I definitely resonate with what you just said. Well, as I'm kind of bringing this to close, I want to tell you that though you may not be shooting from the 
the half court line or from the free throw line and hearing the fans scream in the background, you do have a whole different set of fans now that I think you're, you are gaining as you go through this program. And I mean, people that are rooting for you and that really want this for you, just like you want it for you. And so I, I'm just thankful, Stephanie, that you you took the time to sit down with us and talk about this, but really be honest because you're right. A lot of people aren't, you know, honest, both good and bad. And I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Any parting shots of wisdom, final thoughts before we close out here for people that are listening and considering sitting where you're sitting? First of all, I love all the sport analogies, Chris. Good job. Thank and- you. How about that? <laughs> And I guess my parting words, I'll just refer back to continue to be a student of life, a student of the game, right? The game of life, but also continue to ask questions and continue to ask those hard questions for anyone in any field, considering any program, whether it's the MSW, BSW or whatever, ask those questions and don't be afraid to ask questions. That would be my parting word because I think I really value that and I live by that. Well, I'm thankful you're as fearless as you are. And I think your ability to articulate that fearlessness is particularly resonating with me. So I I just want to thank you for taking this time, Stephanie, and let you know that I think a lot of people are going to really relate to where you are and where you've been. And you're an encouragement. So thank you for that. And I look forward to seeing Dr. Stephanie Rosado on your moniker and on your business card here very, very soon. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I can't wait either.